and uh, God was at work uh, on the field of Barry Park. Well, uh, you can go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we're going to be continuing this series, uh, The Cross into Our Chaos. Uh, and as you turn there, I actually am going to turn not to 1 Corinthians 3, but to Haggai chapter 2. So just listen to these words. You can follow along on the screen. They are super relevant for where we are headed in 1 Corinthians this morning. Okay, so Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. This is what the prophet writes. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house, referring to Solomon's temple, the first temple, who among you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? In other words, asking, how do they see the, the foundation of this new temple that is about to be built? And then God asks, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, listen to this promise, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, what was central to the temple, what Haggai is writing about here to encourage the people, this word from the Lord, is that what is central to the temple is nothing more than the presence of God. This is what the temple was all about, the presence of God being made known and being the place where people would come to worship. And if we read the Bible, we can see that the, the, the way God interacts with his people and reveals his presence is unfolded in different chapters, all right? So in chapter 1, you have God creating his good world and actually dwelling in an unfiltered, unhindered way with his people, Adam and Eve. God made us, and this is what we need to understand even today, that God made each one of us for unimaginable intimacy with him first and then with one another. But we know as the story goes on that Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God's design. They chose their own way, and because of their sin, they were removed from this unfiltered presence of God. 
And yet God still promised to be with his people. The first great expression of this, maybe you're familiar with the book of Exodus, is where God says, build a tabernacle, this movable tent where as you journey from Egypt to the promised land, you will set up this tabernacle when you camp and you will worship me with sacrifices and praise. It's not until that was chapter 2. Chapter 3 is where we fast forward to Jerusalem. And Israel's greatest king, King David, wanted to build a house for God's name. And yet God says, it's not going to be you, David. It's going to be your son, Solomon, who will build a permanent dwelling place for me to be worshipped and for my glorious presence to be made known. Chapter 4 takes us to moments of sadness and tragedy. Because the people did not continue in their true worship. God allowed, yes, even raised up the Babylonians to come in and to ransack the city, including destroying the temple where the people worshipped. And they were carried off into exile. And they were there until they returned, which is what we just read about, to now rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple of God's presence and praise. But when they built it, as we saw here in verses 2 and 3, God asked them, who is left among you in chapter 4 who remembers chapter 3? Because this second temple that's being built after exile does not compare to the building of the temple of Solomon's that was so much bigger and so much more glorious. And so if we were to go to Ezra chapter 3, you can do this on your own, you would see that the people who had never saw Solomon's temple were going wild. They were so excited and impressed by this new temple. But the people who had seen chapter 3 and Solomon's temple were actually weeping so that Ezra 3 says you cannot distinguish the shouts of joy from the shouts of weeping. But God has a word for those who had seen Solomon's temple and we're now seeing this second temple built in Jerusalem to check this out. There is going to be a greater temple. That God is going to bring a temple that is far more glorious than not just this temple but Solomon's temple. And this is what we read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Because Jesus, the true and greater temple of God, the very presence of God himself being fully God and fully man, the son of God, comes to earth and is now remaking a people for God who now, because God has given us his spirit, everyone who follows Jesus is now in chapter 5 because the presence of God dwells within us. The presence of God does not any longer dwell in edifices made of stone, but God dwells, his glorious presence dwells in the hearts of people. And this glory is glory like you've never seen. This is what I want us to think about this morning. The, the, the glory of God's people, the building of God's church is so glorious, it is like glory you've never seen. So what I want to do is I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter. And then we're going to break this down seeing four essential materials that God wants us to use as we participate with him in moving his kingdom forward and seeing his church built before our eyes. So 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this is what Paul writes. He says this, but I 
brothers and sisters, could not address you as spiritual people, this isn't great, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready. And even now, you are not ready. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being, listen to this, merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know, here it is, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. We need to hear this today. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ's is God. Lord, it seems inappropriate that we would not pause and pray one more time because as we saw last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, as Sony so uh, helpfully helped us uh, understand and see, God, that it's only by your spirit that we can understand spiritual things. We, we have your word, God, but we need your spirit to understand your word. 
And not just understand it in an intellectual sense, but as we're seeing here, to put it into practice, to live it out day by day. So God, as we participate with you in the building of your glorious temple, your glorious people, Lord, help us to build with care. Help us to build as you instruct us here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul is continuing to talk about what he desires to see among the Corinthians, which is a unity in the spirit. And he says, listen, if, if you build together in the spirit, we will build something glorious. All right? If, if we build together in the spirit, we will build something glorious. And so Paul, through this chapter, gives us, it's as if he gives us four materials by which we can build something glorious together in the spirit. He says, you need to build with spiritual maturity, a God-centered focus, skillful care, and a kingdom vision. These are the four essential elements that we see here in 1 Corinthians 3. Let's look at the first in verses 1 through 4. He says, you need to build with spiritual maturity, not merely human behavior. After teaching us about how God's wisdom is delivered to us by the Spirit at the end of chapter 2, Paul then says to the Corinthians, by really correcting them and saying, you have the Spirit, but you're not really living like you have the Spirit. And he calls them not just sisters and brothers, members who belong to the family of Christ together, but then he goes on. That's beautiful. That's great. That's what we want to, to see, the reality of being family in Christ. But then he says, you're actually acting like people of the flesh. When he says this, he's referring to our old way of life, how we used to live before we met Christ, before we received the Holy Spirit, the things that we used to do that are contrary to the ways of God. And, and he, he calls them babies, all right? I mean, like, you think Pastor Tanner uh, keeps it real at Redemption Hill? Okay, like, this dude Paul, he was on another level, all right? We can just imagine that with a little bit of sarcasm, but a whole lot of love, Paul is kind of chiding them. He's saying, look, you know, uh, me and Apollos and Sosthenes, you know, we're over here eating our birthday steak, right? I was talking to Taylor. Taylor had a birthday uh, this past week. He was eating some birthday steak. So I can just imagine, you know, Paul's like, they're enjoying their birthday steak, but he's saying, you know, uh, Corinthians, we can't invite you to the table. You precious little babies, you need your milk. Right? I mean, this is, this is what Paul is saying. He's, he's, he's saying you, you're not ready for this kind of living. And, and a lot of times when you think about the milk and meat of the word, uh, like is talked about in Hebrews chapter 6, we're thinking about content and growing in our understanding. And that is certainly what Hebrews 6 is talking about. It's not what 1 Corinthians 3 is talking about. 1 Corinthians 3 is not just simply talking about our understanding of the word and growing in knowledge, in a deeper knowledge, but it is focused on taking the knowledge we have and actually putting it into practice. This is what Paul wants to see. He wants to see us living consistent with what we have been taught by God. And this is such a warning in our Western culture, in the age of information and degrees and all the education that we can get in uh, our, our culture, that we can know the Bible, 
backwards and forwards. We can listen to 10 podcasts a week. We can read our Bible three times a day. And we can make very little progress. And Paul says, look, you're, you're, not, you're not making progress here. Because what's going on, and he explains it in verses 3 and 4. He says, you're focused on people, and this focus on people. See, the Corinthians attached, they were, they were all about public speakers, right? We've talked about, the, they didn't have athletes and, you know, musicians that were filling up concerts, halls, and all this, and stadiums. Okay, they were, they were gathering around orators who could capture a crowd. And so they were saying, oh, Paul, that's, that's my teacher. That's my guy. That's my leader. No, 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 not, not Paul. Apollos, he's the one that I follow. No, Apollos, they're, they're okay, but, but Cephas, Peter, you know, the, the rock of the church, he's the one that, that I follow. And this, this divisiveness was sprouting forth out of, a, of, of an arrogant pride that revealed itself in jealousy. There was, there was envy among the church of, of Corinth. Maybe some were saying, you know, oh, you know, I only learned from Apollos. I didn't learn from Paul. I'm less than. And then the other guys are like, you know, what? You, neither of you heard Peter, and I follow Peter, which makes me better than you. And, and this jealousy and envy was leading to what Paul says in, in verse 3. He says it, it led to strife. It led to relational friction. Rather than being united on Team Jesus, they were breaking the peace, not making the peace. They were not enjoying the harmony that Jesus died to bring them. And so Paul says, look, it's time to, to move on, to move forward, to leave your childish ways behind It's time to make progress. I mean, he, he, this, this metaphor is so brilliant. He, he says, you're like infants. But, but who, who has seen an infant grow? I mean, has anyone seen all the babies around Redemption Hill in the past, past year or so? It's like, I mean, we, we know what parents were doing during lockdown. You know what I'm saying? It's just, I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying. And it's like we got babies all over the place. And it's like you, you take a look at one of these babies and then two months from now, and they're like, you can hardly recognize them, Right? And so Paul is saying, look, there should be clear progress in your life. And even, listen, have the faith for this. Please have the faith. God, give us the faith for this. That at times, not just clear progress, but rapid progress. God wants to take you from where you are to another degree or level of Christ-likeness. He talks about this all over the New Testament, that we are being transformed from one degree of glory, one degree of looking like Jesus to the next, to the next, to where we're not so caught up in people. We're not divided by jealousy and strife, but we are so locked in together by following Jesus that we're, that we're all in. And I don't know about you, but I know that there are times in my life where God looks at me and he says, Tanner, you're, you're taking baby steps here when I've made you to run. You're at mile marker three when you could be at mile marker 13. And, and if, you're, if you're anything like me and you're even maybe hearing that today, you're not satisfied with your, your spiritual progress. Listen, we're so tempted to like wallow in shame and guilt and regret. But God doesn't want us to, to, to live there. He wants to see the vision of what he wants us to become, and he wants us to take action, to take hold of that which is truly life as we follow Jesus. 
So the first material that we need to, to, to grab as we look to be a part of building God's glorious church, glory like you've never seen, is first spiritual maturity, not merely human behavior. But then number two, we need to be captured by a God-centered focus. A God-centered focus, not man-centered. A sure mark, listen, a sure mark of spiritual immaturity is a focus on people rather than a focus on God. I've just discovered the more I focus on God, the greater I am with people, right? And so Paul is saying, Bring your focus in on God. He's not saying that leaders aren't important. In fact, he's going to talk a lot about leadership in this chapter. But he's saying, look, any leader worth following is the leader that points you to the ultimate leader, which is Jesus Christ. And he unpacks this in a number of ways. Look at verse 5. He says, what then is Paul, what is Apollos, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each? The word servant here can mean the one who waits at a table. You see, good leaders, they just serve the food. They just do their job. They just just, uh, try to bring you what you need, but they are nothing more than servants. As pastors, this is how we view our role at Redemption Hill. As we... uh, with our staff directors and and, and, and group and team leaders, we want to have servant-hearted leadership that says, hey, we're showing up just to encourage somebody, to build someone up in their walk with Christ. We're nothing more than servants. And Paul illustrates this in verse 6 with some very clear uh, picture that is from the world of agriculture. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So, he, so here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I showed up in Corinth, and I told you about Jesus. And I planted a lot of seeds of the truth of the message of Jesus, and many of you believed and stepped into the life of Christ. So, so Paul was part of planting this new church, but then Apollos comes in, and after Paul did his thing, Apollos does his thing. And he keeps teaching the people about the word of God. He keeps discipling people, helping people understand what it means to follow Jesus. And so Apollos isn't planting the church, but Apollos is pouring water. Because how many of you know that if you have some flowers out there in the summer heat, that if they don't get enough water, they're going to shrivel up and die, right? So, so Apollos is watering these, these, these beautiful plants that Paul has, has seen come to life. But Paul says, I planted, I did my thing. Apollos watered, he did his thing. But all the while, while I was planting and Apollos was watering, God was doing his thing and God was bringing the growth. God is the one who, this is what Sony taught us last week. Listen, we, we never speak a word. This is even happening, let it blow your mind. It is happening right now. That the condition of the soil of our hearts and the work of the Holy Spirit, even as we're looking at these words, God is doing something invisible in our souls to where we are receiving it and we are going to take a little step of growth or we're like, "Eh, that's not for me, that's for them. Uh, and, And there's no growth at all. 
But in all of this, Paul is saying, look, God is the focus. God is the one who moves. He puts it in even stronger terms in verse 7. He says what? So he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. I mean, God, help us to be leaders that say nothing. Nothing. But God, he's everything. Everything that happens of spiritual good is a result of ultimately God's work among us so that God gets the credit. Now, listen, this doesn't mean, okay, this doesn't mean in verse 8 helps us from the misconception or misunderstanding that our work doesn't matter. Because Paul backs it up in verse 8, and what does he say? He says, he who plants and he who waters are one. So, so in other words, Paul and Apollos, they're not working separately or against one another, like it seems if you listen to the Corinthians talk, but they were working together in a unified way, each doing their part with the ultimate go, goal of making Jesus known. And, and not only that, but God sees our work and it says he will reward each one of us according to our labor. But in, but in everything, Paul ends it by saying, it's all about God. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. As we focus on God and as we get about the work of gospel ministry, okay, the, the, the work, the service of pointing people to Jesus, there's a word that I think we need to hear and be reminded of. See, God calls each one of us to do the work of planting. He calls each one of us to, to do the work of sowing seeds of truth. And, and how we're, uh, Steve DePriso even helped me with this as we were preparing for our uh, evangelism equip opportunity that some of you missed and you're going to get an opportunity in the fall to come to it because it was great. I'm not boasting, I'm boasting in the Lord and Steve's help, right? So, um, but, but Steve helped me de define what does it mean to sow a seed? What does it mean just to plant a seed of the gospel? And what we're just, you might want to write this down. We're just saying it's intentionally pointing someone to Jesus. It's as simple as that. Intentionally point someone to Jesus. And you say, well, well Tanner, uh, that, that's great, but uh, how do we do that? And at our Equip Opportunity, you don't have to wait for the fall. If you want the list, I'll send you the list this week, all right? You better email me this week or text me this week because I'm going on vacation the next week, all right? But, but we identified, didn't we, 26 ways. Alex was there, Glenn. Okay, so 26 ways. I'm just going to give you seven. Seven ways. Because we're like, oh, sowing a seed means I have to sit down with someone and explain the whole Bible to them. And that's not, that's not true. I mean, that's great. Like, go for it. Do it if God, like, opens the door. And, but, but we sow seeds in a variety of ways. Here's seven. Number one, serve someone and share why. So, like, just do something nice for someone, but, but give God some credit as you serve them. Number two, pray with someone. And when you, and when you pray in Jesus' name, you're sowing just a little seed. Number three, share an inspiring Bible verse that relates to them. I mean, you know what they're going through. You know the, the anxieties they face, the difficulties at work. I mean, the Bible has something to say about everything we face in life. There are endless opportunities to see what's going on in the lives of people around us and just sow a little seed by sharing a verse that would be relevant to them. Number four, share a podcast. 
I mean, we need to think outside the box a little bit. I mean, there are some great content, some great podcasts that, that either are explicitly uh, about Jesus and his kingdom, but do it in a very winsome way, or even maybe something different that just sparks a spiritual conversation. Then, number five, discuss a cultural event sharing aspects of the Christian worldview. We talked about the three circles just a couple of weeks ago. God's design, brokenness. How do we get back to God's design through the good news of Jesus Christ? Number six, give someone a Bible. I love telling the story of uh, my friend Josh who I just, uh, God put it in my heart to just say, hey, uh, don't be a coward. You know, no offense if you're a coward like me, but that's what God said to me. Don't be a coward, but I just share this little gospel of John that you have in your winter coat right there. Just, just share it with him. Just say, hey, this changed my life. I'd love for you to read it sometime. The next time I saw him, he said, I couldn't get past verse 5. I was in tears. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word of God brings life. Just let the word do the work. And then number seven, look, share a story of how God is changing you. Just if what, what is God doing in your life? God is, if you follow Jesus, he's doing something. And so look for opportunities to share that. But in every case, listen, every case, even if it's just like a quick text message, uh, whatever. Listen, we sow, we plant, we water, but God is the one whose responsibility is to bring the growth. I, I don't know about you, but this encourages me immensely because what it does is it takes the pressure off. I can relax. I can't make anyone believe what I believe about Jesus, but I'm just going to put a seed in the ground, and I'm going to say, God, would you please help them see who you are? Would you please, please bring this to life? But I can relax. I can, I can trust that God is going to work by his spirit as we do our part. So number two, the second material we need to, to, to build with is a God-centered focus as we plant and as we water, not a man-centered focus. Number three, the third material is this skillful care, not cheap convenience. Skillful care, not cheap convenience. Look at, look at verses 10 through 17. Paul begins and he says, he, he moves the metaphor at the end of verse 9 from agricultural to the world of architecture and construction. And he says, you're God's field. You're, you're the field that God is, is bringing to life, but you are also God's building. And, and then he goes off on this, uh, this building metaphor, and he says, I am like a skilled master builder. The Greek here would read literally a wise master craftsman or a chief engineer. The engineers, I wish I had an engineering mind, I don't. But, but you engineers understand that, that there is a particular way that you design things for maximum effect, max, maximum uh, fruitfulness, right? And, and Paul is saying that because God has given me his spirit-given wisdom, I know how to build God's church according to his design, and he says two things about this. Number one, it, it only happens because of God's grace. Paul, again, he's, he's humble. He's saying, this isn't about me. In fact, he opens with that, according to the grace of God given to me. But then also he, he points out in verse, verses 10 and 11 that every building must have a good foundation. The foundation of a building, which, which is, is firmly uh, planted, uh, 
laid in the ground. We'll say laid. I went to the agriculture metaphor again. So a foundation that's laid in the ground is what supports the whole structure of the building. And Paul says that the foundation that we lay as followers of Christ is, of course, nothing other than Jesus Christ himself. So the church, if the church be true, listen, if the church be true, it is going to be built on Jesus. Not human strategies, not human uh, personalities, not human genius. It is going to ultimately be built on Jesus Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't use people or God doesn't like strategy. Okay, God has a plan. He's executing his strategy, all right? But, but what it's saying is everything must be built and centered around Jesus Christ. And Paul says to everyone at the church of Corinth, but especially in the context, as he's talking about Apollos and, and himself and Peter, he's, this is a word especially for leaders in the church. He's saying you must take care how you build upon this foundation. That's the end of verse 10. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. And then he, then he says, look, we're going to build in one of two ways. All right, don't miss this. You're going to build in one of two ways. You're going to build with materials that are valuable and lasting, like gold, silver, and costly stones, or you are going to pursue the way of cheap convenience and you are going to build with materials like wood, hay, and straw. And so he's saying, look, we have to take care how we build. Every day we're building. Every day. I mean, don't miss this. As you walk with God, you are building. As you walk with God every day and you enjoy that intimate presence that we talked about in the beginning as you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, okay, that God is depositing in you a filling of his spirit to be about the work of pouring out what he pours in you. So we want to build with the materials that are going to last. When we build with gold, silver, and costly stones, we are building with the essential elements given by the spirit. I mean, go back and read. This is good. You might want to, if you're taking notes, if you want to study the Bible, go back to Zechariah chapter 4 and guess what he's talking about. He's talking to the same Zerubbabel that we just read about in Haggai chapter 2 and he's talking about building the temple. And he says what? The verse that is on every coffee mug of every Christian in the cabinet, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We build with the things of God, the things of the Holy Spirit, the gold of truth, the silver of love, the costly stones of unity, holiness, and sacrifice. Are these elements what characterize your life as you serve, as you pour into others, as you share a good word with the person in need, and we're all in need? This is what it looks like to build with, with materials that are valuable, materials that are last. But then also, we know that at times, and we all slide into this area sometimes in our lives where, where we're not building with that which is valuable, but we build with cheap materials, materials of convenience, the wood of jealousy, the hay of division, the straw of apathy, laziness, and self-centeredness. And Paul says, look, this is, this is so important. This is so important, not, be, not only because God wants to build something glorious and actually use us in the process. 
But one day, on the day, everyone's work. And if I had time, and I know most of your names in here, I would just like every Andy, your work. Relish, your work. Teresa, your work. Tanner, your work. Our, our work is going to be tested. Like metals that are tested and refined by fire, proving their value. Our work is going to be tested. And if we have built with gold, silver, and costly stones, our work is going to stand and our work is going to bring God, it's going to point to the greatness of God. But if we have pursued the path of cheap convenience, our work is going to be burned up and destroyed. And so we must ask ourselves, how are we going to build? God, we must pray, God, help me, help us, help Redemption Hill Church build with gold, build with silver, build with costly stones. We want our work to last. We want our love to make a difference. We want the, 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 the costly stones and the silver and the gold. Listen, that, that is what brings eternal value to people's souls. That is what brings people one step closer to God. This is how we build. And if we build in this way, the Bible is clear. Paul says, you're going to experience lots of rewards. And you ask, what are the rewards? Well, read the rest of the New Testament and you'll get some, you'll get some hints on what those rewards are. But rewards are never the focus because I think we'd probably get caught up on those rewards and start doing like the Corinthians, like, oh man, I got this much reward and this, I do this and that. But we know that enjoying God's presence is a reward. We know that serving in the kingdom is what Jesus talks about in one of his parables, that that's a reward that's coming. We know that chapter four is gonna talk about the praise of God. That's a reward. And we wanna receive rewards, not loss. In verse 15, it says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. If our work suffers loss, it's because our work wasn't marked by the Spirit of God. And there's grace even in our work, our life, our service, showing that it could have been better because the Bible says if we're truly in Christ, we won't lose our salvation. We'll still make it into God's eternal kingdom. But the work that we invested in all those years will prove to not last. Verses 16 and 17 make one final and serious call to build with the stuff that lasts. Not the, not the cheap, cheap stuff on the shelves but to build God's glorious temple that is a dwelling place for his Holy Spirit. Not doing anything, listen, not doing anything that would harm God's church, but that which would build it up, to strengthen it, to help it move forward according to God's design. And so we need to build with spiritual maturity. We need to build with the God-centered focus 
And finally, and then skillful care. But then finally, we need to build with a kingdom vision. I love these final verses. What Paul is doing here is he is, he is reorienting their vision in such a way, I love this, that if they, if they really hear what he is saying, they cannot logically or in their right minds refute what he's saying and resist it. What, is, what does Paul say? Look at these verses again. again. Verses 18 through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, then he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness. It's folly with God. For it is written, quoting Job chapter 5. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And then again, and he quotes Psalm 94, verse 11. The Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. And then here's the, here's the encouragement. This is what gets back to chapter 1. And then chapter 2 again. And now chapter 3. Let no one boast in men. It's as if, listen, it's as if God is saying, people, you're focused on people. Look what belongs to you. And as Gordon Fee pointed out, brilliant New Testament scholar, okay, Paul takes the Corinthian slogans, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, which is literally would, would read, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Peter. And he says, you got it all twisted. You are of Christ. It's not, not about people. You, you don't belong to a person. You belong to Christ. And he, he's, the, the you there, we see the individualism. I follow, I follow. But he's saying the you here is plural. He's referring to you as the church, that you together belong to Christ. And because you belong to Christ, don't, please listen here today. Please let the Holy Spirit just pierce your heart with this truth, okay? That because you belong to Christ, everyone belongs to you. Every person, Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Tanner, anyone, they're just servants to serve you because you belong to Jesus. And not only that, okay, not just people, but if you ever wrestle with like the things that kind of come against us as people, like, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow and these plans going to work out and, you know, uh, the, the things of life and, and what about death and that scares me and I'm fearful. And Paul says, look, it all belongs to you. The world or life or death or the present or the future, everything is yours because why? You are Christ's and Christ is God's. Because, listen, because you are united to Christ, everything belongs to you. Luke 12, 32, fear not, little flock, for to you belongs the kingdom. It's all yours. And if it's all yours, then this puts within our souls the best and greatest humble confidence. Confidence because everything is ours. If, if we have Jesus, we have everything that belongs to him. That means we walk with the utmost authority. That we have the very power of God living within us. Christians should be the most confident people in the world. They should be able to stare anything in the face and say, it's not going to faze me or shake me because my God is with me and within me and I am moving forward. 
but also a humility. Because this doesn't originate with us. It originates with Christ. And Christ gives it to us because we are united to him. I'm just telling you this. I'm just telling you this. If you really get this, if you really understand what is yours in Christ, you will be the freest person people have ever seen. You will be so free. You won't have to be somebody, have something to be all that. You have everything. Your identity is in him. And you're free just to love and to serve and to live so fully that you can't help but build something glorious with the people around you as God leads us forward. So I want to pray. And I want you to pray. I want you to ask not just God to help you build something glorious. I want you to ask God to help us, us, the people of Redemption Hill, to build something glorious as we move forward in his name. Father, we are so grateful. We are so amazed, God. We are, we are astounded. God, if we can, let me just, God, let me get on my knees right now and, and confess to you, Lord, that there are so many days, so many moments of my days where I am so consumed with the uncertainty of my future that I forget the future is mine because the future is yours. God, there are so many times where the world presses in against my soul and it, and it shakes me, Lord. But you're saying that, that the world and life and death, that, that, that it all belongs to me because I belong to you. And so, God, I long to see I long to see the people of Redemption Hill increasingly move into this reality that we are Christ's and that the Holy Spirit is within us and that we can make clear progress, even rapid progress because your Holy Spirit is doing crazy stuff in us, making us more like Jesus. So God, would you do it? Would you help us build with spiritual maturity, with, a, with a, such a God-centered focus, Lord, that everything is just filtered through your heart, your eyes. God, that we would build with skillful care with gold, silver, and costly stones, that we would have this kind of kingdom vision that makes us free, the freest people that people will ever see. You are so good. You are so good. You are the God who finishes what you start. So, Lord, help us lean in. Help us lean in for more than 75 minutes of a Sunday morning 9 a.m. service. Help us to take these truths and, and allow you to work them so deep within our souls that we can't help but be changed and we can't help but let our light shine all over greater Boston so that more and more people can know who you are and the life you died to bring us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.